Thank you, team. Thank you. Nice job today. Your singing's getting a little bit louder every every week. You just get you can clap for yourselves. That's okay. That's good. Don't worry about it. No fear. Well, I want to thank everybody first for coming to the fall festival last night. I, we lost count. I, I think we we had to have close to a thousand people here in the two hours. It was amazing. And so, and what was really cool, it was a real kind of cross-section of the entire area. And um, so it was really, so thank you for being a part. If you did a trunk, thank you very much. Uh, we had a really good time. I, I chose this picture just because it was sort of the silliest picture. I have no idea who those people were. Like, I don't know if they were from the church, not from the church, no clue. But uh, they were very funny. So uh, again, thank you for, um, for helping us out with that. All right, so. We are uh, finishing up our series on David. We're ending today on an issue that we're all aware about. We all know this issue, but we choose to forget it or we pretend it doesn't exist. But here's the issue. Is this going to surprise anybody? Life rarely goes as planned. And after today's David's story, we're going to find it easier to remember that fact. And more importantly, we're going to know how to deal with that fact. So that's what we're going to learn today. Life rarely goes as planned. So let's pray together, and then we'll jump right in. Father God, we thank you again for gathering us together this morning. We thank you for the community you're building here at Hammock Street, the ecclesia of your people. We thank you for the words that come to us from the Hebrew Bible, the story of King David. We thank you that even though it's a story about a guy who lived about 3,000 years ago in a place quite different from here, it resonates with all of us, as does all of your words. So God, allow us to keep open minds and hearts as we study David's life and use it, God, to transform us to your image. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, life doesn't go as planned. Life rarely goes as planned. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean you shouldn't plan. It doesn't mean you shouldn't plan for life. As the old Yiddish saying goes, der Mensch tracht und Gott lacht. Man plans, God laughs. Or as the American sage poet John Bon Jovi said, when you make plans, make them in pencil. So who knew? Who knew he was a scholar? Everybody needs a plan, but everybody also needs to remember that all plans are subject to change. And sometimes things don't turn out as planned because of us, because of the things that we do. And whether it's plans for your career or your relationships or your marriage or your family, or your children, or your finances, or your health, there are no guarantees. And depending on your religious background, or lack of religious background, whatever you grew up with, when you see that things aren't going the way that you'd always planned for them to go, you get this internal sense of panic, don't you? You go, what's going to happen here? This is what I planned. Or maybe you get angry, because after all, didn't God promise us that everything would work out for our good? He promised that, right? Did he? Do, do we often feel like, if I follow the rules, God owes me? 
We feel like that sometimes, don't we? I'm a good person. Come on, I do everything right. We know the old saying comes from the scripture, as we sow, so shall we reap. So we do all the things. We do all the things, and yet it doesn't work. Our plans don't turn out the way we want them to. They don't come to fruition. And sometimes, not only haven't our plans or our dreams come true, sometimes there's no way they'll ever come true, no matter what we do. And then, to add insult to injury, especially where we live in South Florida, when we look around, it looks like everybody else around us has their plans coming true and their dreams coming true, but not ours. And it could sometimes even look like God has granted our wishes to other people. Well, today we're going to ask the question that David's life, King David's life, can answer for us. And the question is this, what should we do when our plans can't come true? So, going back two weeks ago, last time I was up here, when David was in his 20s, remember we've been following this life of David, David realized when he was in his 20s that some of his plans weren't going to come true. If you remember, it was mostly because King Saul was trying to kill him the whole time. Remember that? It's hard to have your plans come true when the king wants you dead. And that led to David abandoning his plans and, remember, running into the wilderness just to, just to save his own life. And, and when things didn't turn out the way David thought they would turn out, he did what we do. He kind of freaked out, and he panicked. And that panic led him to do more things, more bad things, a series of really bad decisions that actually ended up with people dying as a result. But then as we continue on reading the Bible and we read the Psalms, remember the Psalms in the, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible? Psalms are the, the songbook of the Old Testament, and, and David was, a, was a, a poet, and he wrote songs. And so when he wrote the Psalms, they were about 30 years after that time. So he was... He was old guy at that point. By the way, old guys in his 50s. We'll talk about that in a second. But he kind of looked back on those decisions, and he had learned some valuable lessons because of the bad decisions that he'd made. Well, in today's story, a grown-up David, King David now, was still making bad decisions. He was still making bad decisions, decisions that would jeopardize his own plans from coming to fruition. And, And the lesson that David learned from that season of his life, can serve all of us. So, last week, when Jasper was up here, we left off with David becoming king. So now we're going to fast forward about 22 years from the time David became the king. Actually, that puts David in his 50s, and that is way beyond David's glory days, okay? Way, remember, he started at 15. When he slew Goliath, he was, he was a kid. He was a 15-year-old. He was a teenager. And nowadays, being in your 50s is quite cool, right? Oh, come on, old guys. All right. It's very cool. But 3,000 years ago? No. 3,000 years ago, being in your 50s made you old, okay? Nobody looked at a 50-year-old 3,000 years ago and thought, youthful exuberance, that's what I see. No, you didn't think that then. So... The older King David in his 50s had sent his men off to war. He did not go off to war with them. He was no longer in fighting shape, which makes sense. We talked a few weeks ago in great depth about how brutal the fighting was. He just wasn't there to do it, so he stayed behind. And here's what happened. We go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And by the way, 
We're going to cover eight or nine chapters in 2 Samuel today, so I hope you didn't make lunch plans. No, I'm going to move as fast as I can, but again, it's a lot of stuff. We're going to fly through this thing. So 2 Samuel 11, 2. One evening, David got up from his bed, and he walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. I had this discussion with somebody and they said, well, people didn't really think about, you know, how people look back then and all that. Yeah, nonsense. Okay. This is in the scripture for a reason. The woman was very beautiful. You might've heard this story before. Anyway, David asked somebody about this woman, one of his people, kings have lots of people. And he learned that her name was what? Bathsheba. Okay. Remember that Bathsheba was the wife of one of David's military leaders. He was a guy named Uriah not Uriah Heep, for those of you metalheads from my generation, but Uriah the Hittite. Now, this is interesting. The Hittites were an ethnic minority. They actually lived in the Canaan region, so that's where Israel uh, was sent. But they lived in the Canaan region actually before Abraham had even gotten there. But So he was Uriah the Hittite, and even though he was referred to as Uriah the Hittite, scholars believe that Uriah was actually Jewish. He was either an ethnic Hittite, he was born Hittite but became a Jew, converted to Judaism, or he was born Jewish but kind of lived among the Hittites, so he identified as one of the Hittites. And the reason I say that is he wasn't a part of the Hittite community. And we know that because if he was, as a Hittite, he would not have been able to marry Bathsheba. So Jewish women could only marry Jewish men. So he had to be somehow connected to Judaism. And that also explains how a Hittite could be a commander in David's army. If he was an ethnic Hittite and stayed that way, there's no way he would have been the commander. So we know this. Anyway, we go on to verse 4. So David sent messengers to go get Bathsheba, to get her. Now, when the king calls you, you go, okay? Even if you're a married woman, when the king calls you, you go. And as a result, Bathsheba came to David and he slept with her. By the way, she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. And it's interesting, according to Jewish law, that would have been a violation of the Jewish law as well because you have to wait a certain amount of time after that. But David didn't wait either. So he's already causing trouble. Well, there are kids in the room. You know what happened. We go on to verse 5. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. And that got David to thinking. He's like, hmm. How do I get out of this? And then he has this great idea. So he asked somebody to call for Uriah, have him come in from the battlefield, come in to David. So when Uriah arrives, David says, hey, how's the war going, buddy? How you doing out there? And then David says, you know, Uriah, you've been working hard, fighting for me and all that stuff. You're back in town. You should go spend some time with your wife. Go spend some time with Bathsheba. Obviously, he's trying to get David, I mean, Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite to have some marital relations, and then it would look like the baby is Uriah's and not David's. But Uriah wanted no part of that. He was an honorable man, and he didn't feel right having a good time, having a good night while his men were out on the battlefield. So instead of going to his wife, he slept at the entrance to the palace. David sent him out of the palace, go be with your wife. They come out the next morning, there's Uriah asleep in front of the palace. And when David found out, he asked Uriah, hey, why didn't you go home to your wife? 
And Uriah replied, my men are out there. They're fighting for you. How could I go home and enjoy my wife? We go to verse 12. And David said, hmm, let's try that again. Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and he drank, and David got him drunk. He figured, okay, if I get him drunk, lower his inhibitions, he'll go back and do the thing I want him to do. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He still didn't go home to be with his wife. He just wouldn't be with his wife. So David had to come up with a new plan. So David wrote a letter to Uriah's commanding officer, a guy named Joab. And in the letter, David wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest, right? Suicide by opposite army. Then withdraw from him, leave him out there so he will be struck down and die. Well, of course, Joab obeyed David's order. David is the king. And as expected, Uriah died in battle. Now we go to verse 26. When Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, heard that her husband was dead, she mourned him, okay? After the time of mourning, the Jewish time of mourning is seven days. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. So David fixed the problem. Woo, problem's fixed. But he really didn't fix the problem at all because the thing David had done displeased the Lord. God was ticked. God was not happy with David. And to add insult to injury, this created a little juicy piece of gossip for the people. It was no different than it is now. When something went wrong in the palace, people couldn't wait to hear about it. So you had the ancient paparazzi, you know, and they're standing out there with the cameras and TMZ as well, probably Hebrew TMZ, but they're out there with the microphones and all this stuff. There's no chance this is staying secret. So the news of David's actions spread. People found out. And at this point, we learn about a guy named Nathan. And Nathan was one of God's prophets. Remember, the prophets get a message from God, and then tell the people about the message. So Nathan served as a spiritual advisor to King David and also to his son, King Solomon, later on. So Nathan approached David, and he presents him with this, quote, hypothetical situation. This is really interesting. So Nathan says to David, hey, King, let me tell you a little story. There were two men in a certain town, nobody you know, two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor, The rich man had a very large number of cattle and sheep, but the poor man, the poor man had nothing except this little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it. He grew up with him. He grew up with his children. The the lamb shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. The lamb was like a daughter to him. Can we get an aw? It's really cute, right? Okay. Now... Now the the dark clouds roll in, dun-dun-dun. A traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. So instead, what did he do? He took the ewe lamb, that cute little ewe lamb that the poor guy had, and he prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now David heard this story, and he lost his mind. He was outrageous. How could anybody do that? That is horrible. And in his anger, David said to Nathan, as sure as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over. 
because he did such a thing and he had no pity. David was feeling very righteous about himself. Yeah, boy, that guy's a jerk. No way. David kind of walks right into that one. So Nathan drops the hammer and he says to David, you are that man. Man, David must have felt, ugh. The prophet says, the story is about you. And David hears this, and it breaks his heart. And that's what sin does. When we sin and we realize what's happened because of our sin, it's heartbreaking. And and our sin often carries with it devastating consequences. And that sin always leaves an indelible mark, not only on the person who commits the sin, but often on the people around them too. So Nathan told David, God has done so much for you, but you broke God's law, and you did evil in God's sight. David offended God, this is a summary, because he'd killed Uriah, and then he took Uriah's wife. And so Nathan ends by telling David in verse 11, this is what the Lord says. Remember, prophets give you the story from the Lord. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Verse 12, you did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. David, as the king, your sin and its consequences are going to be known all throughout the kingdom. Well, crushed by the weight of his actions, David feels it and he repents and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, sometimes when you sin against the Lord and you repent, you still have the repercussions. Once again, because even though David was king, David always understood that he was a flawed and broken man. David understood he was a king, but he knew he wasn't the king, the king of kings. David remembered that he was always subject to God's law. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. See, David repented, the Lord took away his sin, and he said, David, you're not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Even though, David, you're going to live, the consequences of your actions cannot be avoided. You had someone who was innocent murdered, and then you tried to hide it. And then you intended to deceive the entire nation, so your innocent son is going to pay. And that's what happened. The child that Bathsheba was carrying died. But the consequences of David's sin were just beginning. Okay, so I told you there's a lot of chapters. We're going to fast forward 10 years. So 10 years into the future, the consequences of David's sins were still impacting David's life and ultimately derailing David's plans and his dreams. So now we're going to introduce a new character, a guy named Amnon. Or Ammon. Ammon was David's oldest, I'm sorry, Amnon. Amnon was David's oldest son. And as the oldest son, Amnon stood to become the next king of Israel, right? That's how that works. And now we go on to 2 Samuel 13. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister, Talk about that in a second tomorrow that he made himself ill. So David was Amnon and Tamar's father. They had different mothers. That makes her a half-sister. 
But tomorrow, she wasn't interested in Amnon's affections. In fact, she probably didn't even know Amnon had a thing for her. She probably didn't know he was obsessed. So Amnon goes to one of his advisors. He goes to an advisor by the name of Jonadab. Jonadab was one of his cousins, actually. So he goes to his cousin for guidance, and Jonadab comes up with a plan. Here's what he says. Go to bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. Remember, he is obsessed with his half-sister. So David leaves, tells Tamar to bring... uh, David leaves and, and Tamar brings the meal. And when she arrives, she prepares the meal for Amnon and then goes to feed it to him and he refused to eat it. So you see the scene. Half-sister brings the meal. She brings it to her half-brother. He refuses to eat it, and here's what he says. He says, give us the room, right? Don't you always want to say that? Like, you always see it on TV. It's like, uh, give us the room, and everybody leaves, and just two people in the talk. One day I'm going to do that. Anyway, send everyone out of here. And then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so may, I may eat from your hand. This almost sounds like Goldilocks and the, and the three, no. The red riding hood and the wolf. That's what it sounds like. Anyway, so Tamar took the bread that she had prepared and she brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. Pretty creepy. Well, Tamar wanted none of that. She wanted no part of this. This was a total surprise to her. She had no idea this was going on. She said, no, my brother, verse 12, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. But Amnon did not relent. He was not going to take no for an answer. And since he was stronger than she was, he raped her. And then Amnon hated her with an intense hatred. That guilt just welled up. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get out of here. Get up and get out. Now, in that culture, this ruined Tamar's life. She was no longer pure. She was no longer marriable. She'd been, she'd been defiled. Well, of course, when King David heard this, he was mad. He was furious. So what did he do about it? Nothing. He did nothing about it. And it's possible, and we don't know this for sure, but it's possible King David thought, who am I? Who am I to tell somebody how to behave in a moral way? I don't behave in a moral way. After all that I've done, how can I tell somebody how to conduct their private life? We don't know, but David said not a word. So from there, the story turns to Absalom. Absalom is another one of David's sons. It's his third son. Absalom is Tamar's brother, so she's a whole brother, so same mom. Now, Absalom, being a good guy, takes Tamar, his sister, into his house. Now, she was able to live there, and he was able to feed her and keep her in comfort whatnot, but she, she lived in shame, and she lived alone. And like his father David, Absalom never said a word to his half-brother Amnon. He didn't say a word, good or bad, but he hated Amnon because Amnon had disgraced his sister Tamar, Okay? Keep the timeline in mind. Two more years go by. This is the hard part about reading Old Testament is the timelines are so long and we have to read them together so we can understand the whole story. But two more years, two years go by, nothing about the assault is ever mentioned to Amnon. Okay, then one day, Absalom decides to throw a party where he's going to invite all his brothers. 
And he went to David to seek his blessing and invite David as well. David turned down the invitation, actually. David says, no, my son, all of us should not go. We would only be a burden to you. Although Absalom urged David, David still refused to go. But he said, but you can have your party. I give you my blessing. And then Absalom makes this really weird request. Here's what he says. He says, Dad, if you're not going to come, please at least let my brother Amnon come with us. In other words, tell Amnon to show up. And the king asked him, well, why? You know, I thought we were all upset with Amnon. Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him. So David sent with him Amnon and the rest of the king's sons. Okay, so everybody's at the party. We have everybody at the party. Now, here's what happens. 2 Samuel 13, 28. Absalom orders his men, listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, when he's high, when he's drunk, I say to you, kill him. Strike Amnon down and kill him. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. This sounds like a biker movie, doesn't it? Like this is how this goes down. Ah, we're going to get revenge and all this stuff. Then all the king's sons got up and they ran, they fled. So Absalom flees north to Syria, and the others flee south to Jerusalem. Now, initially, word gets back to David, King David, that Absalom had killed all of his sons. But eventually, that was, that was a mistake, it was fake news. Eventually, it becomes clear that Absalom only killed one of his sons, Amnon, the rapist. And he'd been planning to kill him since the rape. That's years ago, but he'd been planning this the whole time. But even though David mourned the fact that his favorite son had just been killed, we find out later that that Amnon had indeed been David's favorite son at the time. Then he found, I'm sorry, his eldest son, Absalom, was his favorite son. So he's got these two beloved sons and killing each other and all this. What does David do about it? What do you think? Nothing. David does nothing about it. So what happens? Three more years go by. Three more years go by. And King David is missing his son, Absalom. He loves Absalom, but Absalom did a terrible thing, but David's still missing him. Well, after a bit of misdirection, we don't have time to go into that today, but David invites Absalom back to Jerusalem. And then Absalom comes back to Jerusalem. He arrives back in Jerusalem, but King David says to him, yeah, I don't want to see you. Go to your own house and don't look at my face. So Absalom, I'm sure he's confused, comes back to Jerusalem. He goes to his own house, and he doesn't see the face of the king. He doesn't see his father's face for the next two more years. That infuriated him. Why did you bring me back to Jerusalem if I'm not allowed to see you? So he sent a message to Joab. Joab was the commander of David's armies. And he sent the message to Joab to get a message to David. You can't send a message directly to the king. You have to send it through an emissary, but Joab ignores Absalom. He ignores him. He's not giving a message to the king. So after trying repeatedly to get Joab to relay the message, Absalom orders his own servants. He says, you know what, Joab, I told him to give David the message. He turned me down. He says, servants, go burn down Joab's farm. That got Joab's attention. Joab went to Absalom's house, and he said to him, hey, jerk, why'd you burn down my farm? Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom replied, look, I sent word to you and said, come here so I can send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would have been better for me if I was still there. 
Now then, I want to see the king's face, and if I am guilty of anything, let him put me to death. Remember, he's there for years. He stayed there years without seeing his father. So Joab got the message to David, and then the king summoned Absalom. And Absalom came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed his beloved son, Absalom. Now, it's likely that David intended this act to let Absalom know that he was forgiven for killing his brother and that their relationship had been restored, but but it didn't work that way. That's not how it was interpreted. It appears that David rarely interacted with Absalom. Again, things were not forgiven. They did not pal around after that. We don't read anything else about how they hung around after that. And that hurt Absalom. It hurt him so much that he thought, you know what? (laughs) I'm just going to take the king's throne for myself. So get this, all right? He's the bad guy. Sounds like the king forgave him. The king didn't forgive him. So the son, Absalom, says, you know what? Enough of this. I'm going to be the king. And here's how he does it. In order to start to win David's subjects over to him, so Absalom's thinking, if I can get David's subjects to like me, then I could be the king. Absalom would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. And whenever anybody came up with a complaint that they wanted to place before the king, Absalom would say, wait a minute, don't bother the king with this. I'll solve your problem for you. He would say, look, your claims are valid and proper. There's no representative of the king to hear you. So he says, listen, if I were the judge, if I were appointed judge, then people at a complaint could come to me and I could see that they received justice. So in other words, Absalom's saying, I am a really great guy. I would present justice for my people. Start coming to me. And so, you know, when people get their problems resolved, they kind of like the person who helped resolve the problems. Well, it turned out to be a brilliant plan. Absalom behaved in this way, verse 6, toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so what did he do? He won them over. He stole the hearts of the people of Israel. He did it for four years. You see how this is going? It's just year after year after year. So four years in, Absalom begins to make his move to take the throne. So, verse 10, he sends secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. So he's building a bit of an army. And so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept increasing. So this is how that worked. Back in those days, and by the way, it kind of feels like today too, if enough people were saying that something was true, what happens? You start to believe it, even though it's not true. You think we all have these brand new problems that the world has never had before, and people are, what is going on? No, it's been happening as long as there have been people. Now, by this point, so I'm going to add up all the years, we are 16 years past the Bathsheba incident. And during those 16 years, David's life has been devastated. His baby died, His favorite son was murdered by his eldest son. Then the eldest son instigates a civil war that's going to divide the nation. This is all because of David's sin, and David is reeling. He's like, oh, the guilt is unbelievable. And then verse 13, a messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Absalom's plan has worked, David. He has won all the people over. And then David said to his officials, come, we got to get out of here. Because this doesn't end well for the king when somebody else comes along and wins the hearts of the people over. We must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. 
We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. So David abandoned his throne to save the city. Once again, David is a fugitive. This is a theme in David's life. He keeps having to run away. But this time he wasn't a 22-year-old fugitive. He was an old man of 61. Hmm, doesn't seem so old to me anymore. That was most certainly not David's plan for how his life was supposed to go. David, at that moment, realized his dreams will never come true. And this is the place where where our lives intersect with the story of David. Maybe we're heartbroken. Maybe we're disappointed. Maybe we're angry. Maybe we're just frustrated with God. Maybe we're looking for somebody to blame. Maybe we're blaming God. Where is God? Why is this happening to me? Isn't he supposed to keep this stuff from happening to us who love him and who are faithful to him? Maybe we've been diligently trying to follow him, keep all his laws, some of us for a long time, and yet we're still struggling. Maybe we've been patient. Maybe we say, okay, God, I'll be patient. I'll be patient. Maybe we've done that. Maybe, maybe we've said or, or done the right things all the time. But things don't seem right with our lives. Maybe that's happened. We were honest. Isn't that supposed to help us? We're supposed to be honest, right? Isn't that supposed to help us? Isn't that what God wants from us? We've worked hard, but maybe we still lost the job. Or maybe we still lost the deal. Or maybe we still lost that opportunity. And this is when we sometimes make things worse for ourselves, isn't it? In these situations, in these moments, and I've seen this happen so many times. I've done this myself because we're angry or because we're frustrated or because we're disappointed with God. We hurt ourselves. And then that makes things even worse. It doesn't make things better. It makes them worse. That creates even more regret. That creates even more pain. And that's where David found himself. He had been there, and he'd done that, and he remembered what happened the first time he fled the kingdom when he took matters into his own hands. We talked about that in this series in week two. But in the years that followed, David was getting wiser. Thankfully, he'd learned something. And and this is the lesson from this season of David's life that we all need to take to heart. We'll go back to our text, 2 Samuel 15. So the king set out with all the people following him. So he still had his loyalists. They followed him. The whole countryside wept aloud. They loved King David. So they're crying that he's leaving the city. And then he crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. They were, they were following him. David's whole family, all of his supporters, fled the city before Absalom and his people got there. And even Zadok, the high priest, even he was there. And all the Levites, all the priests who were with him, were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. This is important. The Ark of the Covenant of God, the exact same one you saw years ago in Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is the same ark we're talking about. That ark represented to the Hebrew people the presence of God. The the Ten Commandments were contained inside of this Ark of the Covenant. Ultimately, the Ten Commandments were misplaced somewhere along the way. We all know they ended up in a warehouse because we saw the movie. But it's believed the Babylonians, when they took the Jews into captivity, they might have had it or something. Obviously, it's never been recovered. But they believed that if they had the Ark and the Ark went before them into battle, it assured their success because it assured God's presence 
was with them. So when David saw them bringing the ark, he knew how the people would perceive it. Wherever the ark was, that's where the people thought God was. David knew that it would look like the presence of God was leaving the holy city. Well, David didn't like that. David could not abide that. Even though he was losing his kingship, he didn't want to hurt his people. So then David says to Zadok, take the ark of God back to the city. In other words, don't bring the ark with us. Because then the people will think God's just left the city. I can't have that. So he sends the ark back, and he's implying the presence of God does not belong to me, King David. It belongs in the city of Jerusalem. It belongs to the people. But here's how David explained it. He said, look, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he'll bring me back, and he'll let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, if the Lord says, I am not pleased with you, then David says, I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. Let God do to me whatever seems good to him. David's saying, I'm not going to try to manipulate God. I'm not going to try to talk God into doing something he doesn't want to do, out of doing something he wants to do. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he'll bring me back. He'll let me see the ark again. But if God says, I'm not pleased with you, David, then so be it. Not my will, but his will. All right? David finally comes to the realization that every time he tries to impose his own will, things don't go well. By this time in his life, David knew that God's will was all that mattered. And I hope you can see it here. David had lost all of his plans. He'd lost all of his dreams. This was not how he expected his life to go, but he did not lose his confidence in God. David understood that even as the king, he wasn't above God's law. David understood that he was a king, but not the king. David might have lost his kingdom, but he didn't lose his faith. He chose to not abandon God, even when it appeared that God had abandoned him. Now, David was not about to go to war with his son and put the city at risk. God put him there, and God would decide when he would be out of there, when he would no longer be king. So David left the city. He left the ark behind. And Absalom took the city without a fight, sort of. Now, the people all knew David wasn't around anymore, but they knew he was local. They knew he hadn't abdicated. He hadn't officially quit. They knew he hadn't died. They knew he hadn't officially named Absalom as his his successor, So Absalom, he's in the city. He's setting himself up as king. He's mapping out his next steps. And Samuel, who wrote this book, introduces a new character. This person's name is Ahithophel. Now, Ahithophel was one of David's advisors. Most people think that Ahithophel was actually Bathsheba's grandfather. But Ahithophel switches his loyalty to Absalom. He's reading the tea leaves. He's going, hmm, Absalom's going to be the king, not David anymore. So he switches his loyalty to Absalom when it becomes apparent that Absalom's going to step up and be the king. So Ahithophel offers his counsel to Absalom. And Absalom says to him, all right, what should we do? So he gives Absalom some relational advice, and then he tells him this. He says, Choose 12,000 men and set out tonight in pursuit of David. In other words, go, go chase your father down. I would attack him while he is weary and weak. I would strike him with terror. And then all the people with him will flee. I would strike down only the king <clears throat> and bring all the people back to you. The death of the man you seek 
will mean the return of all. All the people will be unharmed. So you catch this? Absalom says, listen, go get my dad, kill him, bring his people back, and then we'll have, we'll have Israel back together and I'll be the king. Absalom will be the king. But Absalom's like, hmm, I'm going to get a second opinion. So he summons another guy, a guy named Hushai. Hushai was loyal to David. He's one of David's loyal advisors, and he left the city with David. David said to Hushai, listen, go back to the city and kind of be one of my spies. Go ingratiate yourself to Absalom and so, so you can figure out what he's up to. Then he says, you can help me by frustrating Ahithophel's advice. All right, so following this, is, this gets confusing. Ahithophel says to Absalom, go kill your father. David says to Hushai, go back and frustrate that advice. So, when Hushai comes to Absalom, Absalom says, Ahithophel gave me this advice. He said, kill my father. Should we do what he says? If not, give me your opinion. And then Hushai says, the advice Ahithophel has given you is not good. You know your father and his men. They might be old, but they're fighters and as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. Yes, David was the original mama bear. Okay, you saw it there. Besides, your father is an experienced fighter. He will not spend the night with the troops. Even now, he is hidden in a cave or some other place. Hushai saying, Absalom, listen, your father is an experienced warrior. You're not just going to overwhelm him. So here's what he says instead. Remember, this is trick advice. He says this. Let all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, be gathered to you, with you yourself leading them into battle. In other words, he says, take your time. Raise up a huge superior army. Be patient, and then you can defeat King David. Well, Absalom loves this advice, loves Hushai's advice. So the advice of Hushai, the archite, is better than that of Ahithophel. Ahithophel knew that Hushai's advice would get Absalom killed. For the Lord determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. By the way, Ahithophel, after doing this, goes home and hangs himself. Like, he can't handle the guilt. He can't handle the carnage that he just unleashed. Then, another one of David's men advised David of Absalom's plan. So David, in the meantime, goes to another city. He goes to the city of Mahanaim. He knew he'd have to defend himself and those people with him against Absalom. So David prepares his troops for battle. And he divides his troops into three groups under three different leaders, and he told them what to do. This is 2 Samuel 18, 5. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Etai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. In other words, don't kill my son. And all the troops heard the king giving the orders concerning Absalom and to each other and to their commanders. So he says, like, don't kill my son. I know you're going into battle. We got to take him down. Just don't kill him. If you find Absalom, bring him to me alive. So the battle takes place in the forest of Ephraim, And there, David's troops just crush Absalom's troops. But the battle claims 20,000 lives. 2 Samuel 18, the battle spread out over the whole countryside. And the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. And people were just dying right and left. And Absalom is captured. Remember, David said, don't kill Absalom. But instead of being taken back to David, Joab, one of David's commanders, butchers Absalom while everybody's watching. He just destroys Absalom. The whole army is looking on. And one Absalom, once Absalom had died, his army just disbanded. The Israelites fled to their homes like, yeah, get out of here. See, this is really interesting. 
they didn't ship people off to war. War was like there. So you left your home, you camped out if it was a little bit further away, but you went home after your day of battle. It was really weird back then. But David was told, okay, Absalom died. I know you told us not to kill him, but Absalom died and the king was shaken. David was shaken. And he, he went up to the room over the gateway and he wept. As he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. He still loved his son like that. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And when Joab heard, remember, Joab's the guy who killed him. And Joab heard, wait a minute, I won the war for you. Now you're whining about the fact that I killed your son. Joab scolds the king. Here's what he said. King, that wasn't very nice. Today, you've humiliated all your men who just, they just saved your life. Now go out. This is a guy ordering the king to do something. Never a good idea. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go and celebrate the victory with them, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. But for David, because he loved his son Absalom, his victory was a hollow one. He was a broken man. And even though he went back to Jerusalem as the king, David would never be the same. Nine years later, David died. All right, so we are. David's life is over. And what's really amazing about this long story, and we're wrapping it up, what's really amazing is, do you catch the detail? I told you, that was like eight or nine chapters. I, I skipped a lot of the detail. It's so detailed. If you ever wonder, gee, is the Bible just a bunch of stories, or is it, this is detailed. You can see all of David's flaws, and you can feel all of David's very human emotions, right? You feel his love for his son. You can feel his pain. You can feel his acceptance of God's will for his life. And the thing we need to take away as we wrap up this message and as we wrap up this series is this. Notwithstanding David's very human flaws and very human weaknesses, David never lost faith. David never lost confidence in God. And even David's tragic ending can teach us something important for our lives. The foundation of our faith is not answered prayer. Just because your prayers don't get answered doesn't mean you shouldn't have faith in God. The foundation of our faith is not that everything goes our way. The foundation of our faith is not that we all live happily ever after. In fact, it's always a mistake to attach our faith in God to the fulfillment of our dreams or to the answers to our prayers. And I've known so many people who've walked away from God because their dreams weren't fulfilled or their prayers weren't answered and they felt like they were behaving themselves so well and it still wasn't working out. But just because we have dreams that don't come true and we have prayers that aren't answered, it doesn't say anything about God's presence. It doesn't say anything about God's goodness. It doesn't say anything about God's faithfulness. And David would remind us that when we feel forsaken, we're mistaken. That even when things don't go our way or when our dreams don't come true, through all the highs and lows and all the ups and downs, God is still with us just as he promised. And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've gone to Jesus and you've told Jesus, look, I know, I know I'm a sinner. God, I ask for your forgiveness. 
Jesus, I believe you died for my sins. I believe that you rose from the dead, having defeated my sins. So now I turn from them and I turn to you. You're the one I'm going to hitch my life to. You're the one I'm going to follow. You resurrected from the dead. I give you my heart. I give you my life. If you have done that and trusted God, trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then God is with you too. And he'll never leave you or forsake you either. And as God's people, it would behoove us in all circumstances, in all our triumphs, in all our tribulations, to model ourselves after David's example. That is evidenced by this statement that he made when he was leaving the city. We've seen it. I'm going to put it back up there again. When David didn't know what would become of him, when David didn't have any visible reason for any hope at all, David was still able to say, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he'll bring me back. Let the Lord do to me whatever seems good to him. Not my will, thy will. I know how I want things to to turn out. I really felt like it was going to turn out this way or that way, but not my will be done, thy will be done. I may lose my world, but I will not lose my confidence or my faith in the creator of the world. I will not lose my confidence or my faith in God. I will not abandon him even when it appears that he's abandoned me. When my dreams are coming true and when they're not coming true, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you. You see, our God loves us and he'll never leave us and he'll never forsake us. And in spite of all the things that happen around us, as followers of Jesus, no matter what may come, we can always say with confidence, not my will, thy will be done. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father God, these are hard words. It's difficult to have plans and have dreams, and have hopes, and have desires, and have aspirations, and to see them not come to fruition. It's difficult to be told over and over again, you're a good God, and you're a loving God, and you're a caring God, and you'll never leave us or forsake us, but then not fulfill our dreams. But God, studying the life of King David, we see that we all come into this world, we're all a mess, we're all broken, and broken things happen in a broken world. But we also know, God, that you do work all things out, but they worked out for you, for your good, for your glory. And we just get to ride along with it. So, God, allow us to understand always, not my will, but thy will be done. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this study of David. We thank you for the lessons we've learned. God, we are looking forward to seeing what you'll do in our lives and how you'll guide us this day, and how you'll draw us closer to you through the ups and the downs. We love you, God. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name.